Good morning, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this webinar on the impact of the pandemic on global markets, growth, trade, and food security in Africa, organized by IFPRI with the support of USAID. My name is Fuseni Traore, and I'm a research fellow in the Market, Trade, and Institution Division of IFPRI, and I will be the moderator of this event. We would like to thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this recording after the event. We have an exciting program with four parts. First, a couple of opening remarks, then five presentations, two from IFPRI and three presentations from regional actors based in Africa. Then we'll have a Q&A session and some closing remarks from our Director General. We are eager to hear from you to participate in the Q&A sessions that will follow the presentations. Please submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. So without further ado, let's get started with the opening remarks. And I will now call on Sam Benin, who is IFPRI Deputy Division Director for Africa for his opening remarks. Sam. Thank you for saying it. <clears throat> Greetings to you all. From where I am, it is good morning. As you know, the novice coronavirus or COVID-19 has shocked economies and livelihoods in every part of the world. Africa, the focus of the topic for today is fighting the crisis within several crises, including, for example, the locust outbreak in Eastern Africa and the recent flooding in the Sahel region, as well as continued and widespread conflict. This implies that the already vulnerable populations, their situations of them have become dire. Therefore, assessing the impact of COVID-19 on growth and food security in the context of global markets and African agricultural trade, which is the topic of this virtual event, is very important. And it seems that the policy implications should be relevant to those other shocks as well. And that the efforts and resources devoted to fighting those other crises must not, be, must not get crowded out. As IFPRI ramps up its research on COVID-19, it remains committed to broader research and policy analysis in support of Africa's development agenda. On the broader topic of African agricultural trade, for example, IFPRI in partnership with others recently released the third edition of the Africa Agricultural Trade Monitor, also known as the AATM. I just ended AGRF, which is the African Green Revolution Forum. As you know, agricultural trade is important for the continent and African leaders have committed to tripling intra-African trade in agricultural goods and services under the Malabo Declaration on Accelerating Agricultural Transformation for Improved Livelihoods and Shared Prosperity. But let me not bore you with my opening remarks, as I know that the speakers have very exciting research results to share with you. And let me close by appreciating the partners of IFPRI in conducting this research and also in this broader work. I especially thank USAID and the CGAIR 
research program on policies, institutions, and markets for their support in this work. Please enjoy the presentations. Over to you, Fuseni. Thank you very much, Sam. So the next speaker is Mr. Patterson Brom from USAID. He is a senior trade advisor at the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security. Patterson. Thank you, Fuseni, and thanks to everyone on the IFPRI team for bringing this webinar forward. We, uh, we believe it's very important to get this important evidence out, and certainly good morning and good afternoon to everyone else joining us. My name is Patterson Brown. I'm the Senior Trade Advisor in USAID's Bureau for Food Security and Resilience in Washington. And we're very pleased to be a part of the discussion today and be able to showcase some of the great work that IFPRI and all our other partners are doing. IFPRI continues to be one of our go-to partners that can bring the evidence and analysis country and regional policymakers need. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, we turned to IFPRI to help in tracking the impact of COVID-19 on markets and trade flows, supply chains, and on economic and nutritional outcomes. We knew this wasn't, to wait, this wasn't something to wait on based on the experience of the 2007-2008 food price crisis, which very quickly brought to the forefront the need for better evidence, data, and analysis. That period showed us that important trade policy decisions would be happening in real time and we needed to be able to bring in real-time information to look at the impacts from decisions. That would be covering the short, medium, and long run. So IFPRI, along with our partners here today, have been critical in generating the fodder needed to make better policy decisions. And as you'll hear more about on the webinar from the partners and presenters, COVID-19 is most directly impacting access to food, as well as disruptions to availability and certain, certainly affordability, as well as consumer demand changes toward options toward cheaper, less safe and nutritious foods, and on changes in food prices. So from the USA perspective, above all, we want countries to have access and use evidence to the best decision-making uh, evidence that can be for the well-being of their people, certainly the most vulnerable, and to accelerate progress on their journey to self-reliance. Trade is a necessary building block in reaching system-level transformation and sustainable growth. Food trade within and between countries allows diversification of supplies that helps reduce vulnerability to market shocks. We simply won't get there without trade, and this is in an opportune moment in time. In particular, we want to support the very ambitious set of commitments that African leaders have taken with the African Free Trade Con Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. Our partners on the webinar today are certainly essential pieces of that broader effort. That agreement has incredible promise in unlocking regional trade flows that will help to increase the affordability of safe and nutritious foods, improve resilience of vulnerable communities, countries and regional markets to shocks, and above all, lowering poverty and hunger. We see this webinar, along with two others that will follow this fall, as one of the avenues to bring forward additional evidence and perspectives to help African nations and their partners conclude and implement that agreement. With that, I'd like to say again, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this event and I look forward to the presentations and discussions. Thank you, Patterson. So let's move to the presentations. And as a reminder, to participate in the Q&A session, 
please submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. So let's start with David Laborde. David is a senior research fellow and the head of the trade and macroeconomics group in the markets, trade and institution division of IFPRI. David. Thanks Husseini and thanks everyone to be uh, with us today. Um, I'm going to uh, provide you the kind of big picture about what COVID-19 means for uh, trade and particularly in the case of Africa. Um, and the other speakers will provide some more uh, focused discussion, both on agricultural market and specific value chain. But as Patterson has said before, we also will have other webinars that we look at specific aspects regarding regional integration and uh, informal trade, for instance, and how in the specific situation things have evolved. So, next slide, please. I mean that you should all aware that this COVID-19 is a one in a century type of shock that is initially a health crisis that has degenerated in an economic crisis and has also some food uh, implication. And the three main channels at play is on one hand, this huge economic crisis that creates a disruption in economic activities and is a loss of income for uh, everyone in the world, especially the most vulnerable groups. Um, so if you're a daily worker without social protection, you are on the front line if you cannot go to work every day. You have some supply disruption, um, including in the access to, to inputs or in the processings that will basically uh, impact producers and consumers are impacted also by other type of disruption, some linked to panics or some linked to bad policies like export restriction as we have seen. Uh, and so it really is how people react to the crisis more than the crisis that can be at stake. Next slide, please. So, let me maybe just say, okay, if we're interested in trade, it's because it's a way to um, provide different um, product that, that you need um, and to generate income. So we are not really focusing on trade for the sake of trading, but really about how it can help and improve a livelihood and to understand how it is impacted by the different elements I have raised before. In my presentation, I will not discuss specific questions like logistics, but really I will say about how COVID-19 is really impacting both um, the economic activity and so this income generation aspect, but also how it changed consumer demand. And of course, we are dealing with a crisis that is evolving every day, so it's very difficult to get you know, detailed data, especially on big macroeconomic indicators like trade uh, at a high frequency. But we can already see on this graph how the different regions of the world have been impacted in terms of people mobility. So we track people with their cell phone, thanks to, to Google. And Africa is not one of the most impacted regions, meaning that people have continued to uh, go shopping, to go to work, uh, but less. Uh, you see, for example, on the uh, lower uh, right corner, going to workplaces, it has been decreased by 20% in average in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but other regions uh, like North America or Latin America have been much more significantly impacted. But still, we, you see, we are talking about important description about how people go to work, how people are shopping, and therefore what type of uh, thing they are demanding. Next slide, please. But the other point I would like to make clear is that when we talk about Africa, we are dealing with a very diverse set of countries uh, that have some similarities, but to, different countries are actually impacted differently. 
And here is the same type of how people are, are, are behaving. And you see differences across the continent where uh, like in Cameroon, people are relatively not impacted or have recovered normal practices relatively quickly. While at the opposite, country like Mauritius, and in particular due to the huge disruption of the tourism industry, you have seen this fall in economic activities much more significantly. And you see on my graph that the situation has started to improve in the more recent uh, weeks, but maybe the second wave starts to also manifest and we are not sure how and we will phase out of this crisis. Next slide, please. So as I was saying, you know, we are uh, actually facing a major shock, even if Africa is not the most impacted so far by the COVID-19 uh, crisis at the health level, but also in terms of disruption in economic drivers. Africa is one of the most vulnerable regions initially. Why? Because we have a high level of, of uh, poverty. And um, so here you see the different economic shock. On the left side, it's the fall in uh, national income. And actually, Africa, uh, in some cases, is much more affected than the rest of the world. But it's particular, like in Central Africa, country that export oil and the oil market has been heavily impacted this year. So a lot of loss of, of income. Uh, and uh, on the right hand side, you see also different projections about depending on what type of recovery uh, we can get, but also this, this, this heterogeneity within Africa. So really keep in mind that I'm going to talk about Africa, but Africa doesn't mean a lot. It's different countries that have different things at stake. Next slide, please. So now that you have this macroeconomic impact, here uh, you start to have an idea, as I've said, about why we are trading. So the way to look at it is what we call the current account. Um, on my slide here, you have both on the left part, consolidated current accounts of when we add up things for uh, all Africa. And on the right, about what is happening if you just make an average across country without weighting them. So thinking that Mauritius and Nigeria will have the same weight. And what do we see? So the left part of these columns are the credits, so your exports. And so what you use to generate income on global markets. And on the right hand side, what you are using uh, this money for. And the things with Africa is that first, there is a, a structural deficit. So Africa needs foreign finance to, to cover it. But basically Africa is exporting uh, goods, commodities, but also services for tourism and get money for remittances. So uh, by exporting is labor force. And these three components are actually impacted by the crisis. So the capacity for Africa to pay for its import bill is directly uh, impacted by this. Just also to keep in mind that the, the gap between um, the credit and the debit here, so the capacity for Africa to pay for what it imports uh, is basically covered by both FDI that will be negatively impacted this year, but mainly still by uh, international development aid that will be a very important way to, to deal with that. Because the current crisis is basically impacted both sides. And as we are going to see in some cases, it can impact more the export side than the right side. Next slide, please. On the remittances, um, so here I'm going for the sake of time to say that, of course, we have, uh, when you factor all of this, you start to see significant impact in terms of, of poverty 
and uh, nutrition outcome. We can go back to the, during the discussion. Next slide, please. But the point I want to make here is on the left-hand side here, you see how remittances have started to be contracted globally. So here the year-to-year -year increase, but you really see this big contraction. And on, that's Western Union data, by the way. And on the right-hand side, you see this macroeconomic impact in terms of your effective real exchange rate. So if you start to not have the capacity to pay for your import bill, you are going to start to run a current account deficit and your, um, your real exchange rate, that basically is a good metric about your purchasing power on world market is decreasing. So your capacity to pay for your import and your import demand is going to shrink. And here on the graph, you see also the heterogeneity across countries with, like if you see the, the green bar for Nigeria, really the collapse coming from the oil price. Uh, other commodities like copper have been impacted also, so countries like Zambia. And Côte d'Ivoire is in an interesting situation because yes, on one hand, the cocoa price has fallen, but Côte d'Ivoire is part of the uh, CFA franc zone that is pegged to the euro. And with a strong euro, actually it has protected some West African countries to suffer from this real exchange rate depreciation. So it has maintained some of their purchasing power. So this is where all this complexity of both financial variables and trade variables interact. Next slide, please. So if now I'm just looking about how this crisis is importing export price and import prices. And we have basically a metric called terms of trade and that you will see on the left hand side of my graph. You see this big collapse, uh, especially um, on the export price, raw commodities, both agricultural but mainly minerals have really hurt Africa as a whole significantly. So their capacity to pay for their import bill had been restricted. That's very different from how the economic crisis is translated in East Asia, for instance, that is importing a law of raw commodity, cotton, oil, and actually mitigate the impact of the economic crisis by getting uh, this gain in purchasing power. But as I've said, think that different countries in, the, in Africa are impacted differently. And on the right hand side, you see this ratio between export price and import price. Blue, it means that it was an improvement. Red, it was a deterioration. And it really depends about what you are producing. So if you are producing um, coffee um, that has relatively good price recently, or uh, gold and diamonds that people have bought during the crisis as a safety value, moreover, South Africa went through some disruption on the supply chain, you get a better price. If you are selling other type of goods, like cashew nuts with the fall of demand of, of China, price went down. Next slide, please. And that will be my, my conclusion. You know, first, you have this heterogeneity, but what it will mean in terms of recovery? And what we have seen is that actually, if you just focus now on agricultural terms of trade, before it was a big picture, because you know, in order to pay for some import bill, you may uh, want to export other things. So if you not just focus on agriculture, you see that actually, the uh, terms of trade and the export price of agriculture have been pretty resilient. That's very common in this type of macroeconomic crisis, meaning that even in the worst situation, people continue to buy, so the food demand is much more stable than other type of demand. So agriculture can be a way for the recovery, especially um, if we have a, a kind of, of slow macroeconomic recovery overall. 
on my graph, and that will be my last word that will make the transition with, with Joe, you see that around April, you see this jump, uh, this fall of the terms of trade, and that was typically related to the price story of rice, uh, because rice is one of the big commodities imported by Africa, and directly linked to some uh, policies response in the rest of the world, and I think um, Joe will talk about it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, David. So the next speaker is Joseph Glober. Joe is a senior research fellow in the Market Street and Institution Division of IFPRI as well. Yo. Thanks, everyone. Um, unmute us. Okay, I hope everyone can hear me now. Um, first of all, go ahead and advance this slide while I talk. Uh, I'm going to follow up on what David was talking about. I think what we're going to find with generally with, with a lot of the, uh, certainly the bulk trade, uh, but also other agricultural products that they have been, they have been affected negatively uh, in some cases, but, but surprisingly very, very resilient. And I think David's point that uh, even during recessions, people still consume food, tend to consume food, that um, we'll, we'll see that in some of the measures that we're looking at. This is just looking at transportation costs. I think this has been very, very important for specialty crops uh, in Africa or uh, exports that are going to Europe uh, that say cut flowers or other things that, that typically may be used in air freight. Uh, there, those prices have been very high. Why? Because people aren't flying. And because that the number of aircraft that are actually flying uh, to and from uh, continents, you know, fell dramatically. Um, that's been a big story this year. Uh, next slide. If you look at general consumption trends, however, you can see that, that uh, really 2020 is pretty much uh, flat up a little bit for most of the major commodities. Wheat's down uh, uh, only because feed use uh, in 2020 is projected down uh, from where it was the year before. Uh, it actually, for 2021, which that year has already begun, um, uh, the 2021 year, uh, that, that wheat uh, consumption is, is projected to be up again. Um, but cotton is one that really stands out, and that is one that is affected by uh, a global recession. Apparel uh, consumption is projected way down, and, and because of that, cotton is down. Maize is down a little bit only because of the impacts in the U.S. on, on ethanol, because of people are driving a lot less. That means a lot less gasoline is being consumed, a lot less ethanol is being blended into gasoline, and a lot less corn is being made into uh, ethanol. Next slide. If we look at the, the trade picture, and these are just numbers that the WTO has, has released, you can see for the first quarter, uh, actually those were pretty good um, uh, for most regions, including Africa. That if you look at agricultural exports, up around 6% um, uh, in the first quarter. But we can see that more recent data, if we're looking at April, um, those are, are down. Now, in other areas of the world, like the Pacific, you can see Asia and the Pacific, you can see that the first quarter was down. That was reflecting the fact that they were hit by COVID earlier and then uh, started to see a, a recovery a little earlier than the rest of the world. Uh, South America will be interesting, I think, if only uh, when we start seeing uh, data for May, June, and, um, and, and later in the year. Next slide, we'll look at imports. 
And there, uh, it's a very similar story. That is, uh, imports actually have been up for a lot of regions, including Africa, including uh, even with the more recent data. But you can see in Europe, North America, other areas which are, again, important markets for uh, uh, Africa, um, that, that those uh, import levels uh, have declined um, uh, for agricultural products. Uh, next slide. So the one issue that is, uh, when looking at the, the food price crisis of 2007-8 and 2010-11, one of the big concerns was all of the policies that were put on to um, uh, things like export bans and other restrictions that caused these big price spikes. And, and so there, there's a lot of interest. IFRI's been tracking uh, policies, as, as many of you know. We have a, a portal on on, the, on our website that uh, can give you up-to-date information on export restrictions. This just shows you kind of the vulnerability to grain export restrictions just by looking at some FAO, uh, FAO data on what percent of the diet comes from cereals uh, in terms of calories uh, and how important uh, uh, imports themselves are as a uh, uh, portion of total um, import, uh, uh, excuse me, total uh, uh, cereal consumption. And you can see that, that not surprising, North Africa is very, very high, and that's essentially the story of wheat. That's important because uh, one of the early countries that, that announced that they might be putting, that did put on export re restrictions for a, a few months were uh, Russia and Ukraine. And there, you know, you can see the sort of vulnerability that some of these countries have. Uh, rice is another important uh, import uh, uh, a crop uh, for, for some regions. And there, you know, we look at, at countries like Thailand or Vietnam that we're, we're discussing export restrictions. The good news is, next slide, is that actually none, none of these countries of the major grain producers um, really maintained restrictions for very long. And I think that it's hard to zoom in on the individual countries here, but the, 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 the effects were relatively minor. Now, local effects though are, are also very, very important. Uh, I think some of those are harder to, to sort of track on a day-to-day -day basis, but you take a, a, a crop like onions in South Asia, that we have seen restrictions there. They're a very important crop locally. Um, you know, to, to see this, those sorts of restrictions and, um, you know, with cross-border trade uh, being halted or whatever, those are uh, important uh, commodities to track. It's just, it's far more difficult to get this sort of day-to-day -day information on that. Um, um, but it, it points to the importance of transparency and, um, and trying to uh, reporting on this. Next slide. Well, the, the last slide here just looks at the commodity prices. And I think there, you know, again, the story is a lot of these commodities, uh, we saw a big price uh, drop in the first quarter, second quarter of the year, but we have started to see recovery. Now, some of that has been aided by uh, uh, what's going on in the grain markets with China, uh, importing a lot more wheat, a lot more maize, um, uh, and, but generally there's been a recovery now. Um, so uh, I think that's it for me. Next slide, if there is a next slide. No, there isn't. So I'm going to stop there and uh, yield back my time. Thank you very much, Joe. And uh, 
Now we'll move to the next series of presentations. We'll hear some special remarks and uh, conclusions and recommendations from the field, I mean from Africa. So the first speaker will be Nalishebo Mebelo. She is a senior program coordinator in the regional network of agricultural policy research and institutes in Zambia. And once again, as a reminder, if you want to participate in the Q&A session, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or on Twitter using hashtag AskIFPRI. Nalishebo? Thank you, uh, moderator. Uh, let me begin by thanking the two initial speakers from IFPRI and USAID who spoke earlier, uh, and the two presenters who have um, very clearly and elaborately made presentations on uh, the global perspective of uh, the impact of COVID-19. Uh, and also to appreciate um, IFPRI and USAID for inviting Renapri to be part of this webinar today and um, as uh, Patterson rightly put it, we, there are many pieces to this uh, issue of um, dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and RENAPRI happens to be one of those pieces. Um, I'm based at the Secretariat of uh, RENAPRI and I coordinate the day-to-day -day programs of um, a network of agricultural policy institutes that are based in 10 African countries. And uh, the network generates high quality research to guide national, regional, and continental level agricultural sector policy. Uh, we also undertake um, outreach uh, while also building the capacity of uh, African um, agricultural policy research institutes to be able to undertake excellent research. So uh, in appreciating um, the two excellent uh, presentations um, that were um, delivered by David and Joe, um, I will give just three broad points. My first point will look at an overview of some of the work that is being done by RINAPRI to guide national governments and other regional and continental institutions concerning uh, policy responses to the impact of COVID-19. And I will try to focus on, on, on issues of, of trade. And then I will share some of the findings. So based on the research that has been undertaken by our centers, what are some of the findings? And how do those findings relate to David and Joe's presentations and possibly cite an example um, here and there? And then I will just give some concluding remarks. Um, so in terms of what RENAPRI has been doing in the context of research towards informing policy during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, um, each of the 10 RENAPRI centers has been providing some real-time data to their national governments to address the impact uh, and using tools that are um, suitable to the current context. As you know, doing research uh, during this period is not that easy. Uh, the centers have also provided an inventory of the key areas um, or questions that are relevant to supporting national COVID um, responses. And uh, to name just a few, um, our centers have been looking at the status of food, the implication of global trade policies on key commodities such as rice, rice is a big commodity, food price outlooks by quarter, agriculture input supplies, tracking of food value chains, impact of COVID-19 on essential foods, 
its impact on nutrition security and livelihoods, its impact on uh, household purchasing power, impact on intra-African trade, uh, as well as impact on landlocked countries, non-landlocked countries, effects of lockdowns on food production and distribution, effects of restricted movements uh, on uh, supplies of inputs. Um, we have also partnered with, uh, you know, non-RENAPRI institutions, uh, for instance, together with IFPRI, who are here tonight, we co-chair a task force on um, um, food and nutrition security data and hunger hotspots during the COVID-19 pandemic. You might be uh, aware of that, our IFPRI colleagues who are here. And under this task force, we are about to embark on a review of the policy responses to COVID-19. It's one thing to do research on the impact of COVID-19. It is another to also research uh, the policy responses that have been um, uh, implemented by our governments. And so this is a study that will be undertaken um, in partnership with, um, I think, the University of Washington. Um, RENAPRI also in partnership with um, the Alliance for African Partnership and IFDC are leading on the research work that will lead to the second African Fertilizer Summit. And this is aimed at boosting production and productivity. And uh, production productivity is a key topic uh, during the uh, uh, current era of COVID-19. Uh, and, and we've been involved in various other issues. So in terms of some key findings, and just to relate them to uh, the presentation made by um, our colleague, uh, colleagues David and Joe, it is true, as stated in the presentations, that there are different impacts due to different uh, drivers, uh, and that Africa is not homo homogeneous in several ways, uh, and that therefore there will be variations in terms of the impact of COVID-19 from country to country. Uh, and thankfully, RINAPRI is um, in several regions of Africa. So we do get um, feedback from our centers uh, that is sometimes not necessarily uh, homogeneous. So some of the research findings point to the fact that uh, border closures are restricting trade flows of food and related services. COVID-19 has disrupted uh, regional and global trade and slowed demand for Africa's agriculture export products, placing jobs and livelihoods at risk. Food inflation is said to be higher than non-food. There is declining total national imports, uh, and this has been noted in uh, several member countries, including non-landlocked countries, uh, such as uh, our colleagues in Ghana. Uh, COVID-19 is transported by humans, and therefore transporters, cross-border transporters, have been noted to be sometimes carriers of this virus. Uh, there are threats of high-level poverty and malnutrition looming in the horizon. And I saw this in um, one of the presentations. Inflation, currency exchange rates, rising food commodity prices, these are also evident in uh, the findings. Um, increased transportation costs, um, that's a given. Low production due to supply side constraints, and these are coupled with the already existing challenges in um, fertilizer use. Uh, low extension services, and these are negatively affecting output, including not only quantity, but quality of food. Uh, and this is leading to low availability of food, increased demand for food, and of course, increased in, increases in food prices. Reduced incomes due to reduced employment opportunities. All these are uh, resonating uh, in um, David and um, 
and Joe's presentation. So in just sort of wrapping up my intervention, I just wanted to say that um, high quality research, good data analytics will continue to play a critical role in guiding our national, regional and continental level policy in Africa during the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, for the purposes of this topic, um, research in, in issues relating to global trade and trade uh, in Africa. Um, it is becoming evident that the current coronavirus is here for a while. Uh, and I'm seeing that African countries are beginning to take note of this. It's here for a while. So we need to develop strategies uh, that will ensure that um, we deal with our economies um, um, and ensure that we, we get some growth happening um, positively. Um, so I think I would like to stop here, um, uh, moderator, and, and wait for uh, questions later. Thank you. Thank you, Nadi Shebo. Now we'll move to the next speaker, Jen Nalunga. She is the executive director of the Southern and Eastern Africa Trade Information and Negotiation Institute based in Uganda. Jen. Um, thank you so much, moderator. Thank you so much, moderator, and thank you so much, uh, the previous uh, presenters. And also a big thank you to IFPRI uh, for this very uh, important uh, conversation. Um, my presentation, I'll be adding on uh, to what has been presented. In fact, putting a face on what has been uh, what has been presented. Asiatini work on issues of trade, uh, investment, fiscal policies in order to make these policies work for uh, the people. So my presentation will also be um, tilted uh, towards that angle. I, I will look at, I will share experiences from Uganda and from the East African region as regards uh, the impact of the disruptions in domestic, regional, and global agricultural markets and the impact it has had on growth and food security. As we are aware, um, the COVID-19 pandemic and the measures containing it, uh, which included border closures, international and domestic travel restrictions, closures of business, they have disrupted agricultural markets at all levels with far-reaching impact on growth, food security, and people's livelihoods, especially in Africa. And as has been uh, pointed out, Africa is more vulnerable because already the pandemic found the, the continent in a very vulnerable uh, position. And disruptions in trade have affected the agricultural sector because uh, most of our exports are, are commodity exports. For example, in Uganda, 80% of our total exports are made up of agricultural products. Added to that, um, more than 60% of Africa's African population depend on agriculture uh, for their livelihood. So anything which uh, disrupts agriculture affects uh, the uh, countries and also affects um, uh, the people. Uh, at government level, uh, the disruptions has, have 
led to public revenue losses um, and to limited capacity of government to provide uh, public services and also to be able to respond adequately uh, to the crisis. This has also led to a high level of indebtedness in many African countries as they look for uh, resources to be able to address the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, and as uh, David and Joe pointed out, all this is happening in, um, against the background of the falling remittances, of the falling FDR's flows, and also on the very negative impacts on key sectors in African economy like tourism and agriculture. There have been mixed impacts uh, in Africa as regarding uh, on, on agricultural production and food security. Uh, to give an example, in Uganda, there has been increased availability of food in domestic markets, especially in urban areas, uh, because we are not exporting anymore. Um, and because also government has food to come into the urban areas. Again, also the urban poor, number of them could afford food because also um, there was no markets. But because of limited incomes, even the urban poor could not access food. And also the small scale producers could not access the increased uh, the inputs, inputs because of the increased costs. And this is going to affect the future production of food. So in um, government um, put in place measures, one, to distribute food to the urban poor, uh, but the food was purchased from the private sector, from the middlemen. So the small-scale producers never benefited uh, from government um, government purchasing of food. Government also put in place the e-voucher system to help small-scale farmers to access inputs. But again, the system of the e-voucher system is in certain districts, but it's also an online, an online um, system which leaves out so many small-scale producers. I just want to look at some proposals on the way forward uh, in order to address uh, the market uh, disruptions and the, in order to promote agricultural uh, trade. One, I think it's very, very important to make agricultural markets work for small-scale producers. Africa has a very huge rural population and agricultural growth will be key to addressing poverty inequality and also should be a key factor in the policy COVID economic re reforms. Um, so one of the proposals is to address the existing productive capacities, you know, that these have been there for a long time. The whole issue um, which was raised uh, by the, uh, uh, in the previous presentation on the Maputo protocol, it was agreed, African countries agreed, that at least 10% of their budgets should go to agriculture. But 
my country in Uganda, it has never gone beyond 4%. So there are issues, long-standing issues, to address product, agricultural productive capacities in Africa, which we need to address. And COVID has shown that the only way to, to survive in Africa is to be able to put emphasis on our agricultural production. Uh, the second point is that we need to address the challenges in the global, regional, and, uh, and national agricultural markets. Uh, for example, at, uh, at global level, there are also the long-standing challenges in the WTO negotiations, issues around subsidies, issues around tariff escalation, issues around the cotton issue. All these issues, the agricultural issues, should be revisited in the WTO. At the regional level, I can give examples of border closures because, for example, in the, um, the East African region, even before even before the COVID, border closures due to COVID, there were already trade wars, border closures, and I think these are issues which have to be addressed because regional markets are important to stimulate agricultural uh, production. Um, last, uh, at the local level, again, we need to look at um, trade policies, which lead to unfair competition on the domestic markets for small, uh, small producers. Therefore, we need viable markets for domestic producers, for them to be able to produce. Lastly, they, it's also important to discuss issues around the policy environment that we enable uh, increased production and productivity. And these ha have to be holistic. They have to be interrelated. Policies regarding trade, investment, fiscal, all these issues have to be self-supporting and interrelated. And lastly, there's a lot of debate um, around uh, post-COVID uh, economic reforms. Agriculture and agricultural production has to be thus at the center of these debates. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we are going to move to the last presentations by Purvia Pandia. She's the Deputy Chief Executive Officer and Head of International Relations, Research and Development at the Export Trading Group Farmers Foundation, EFF. So once again, to participate in the Q&A session that will begin soon, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Purva. Thank you, Faseni. And thank you, IFPRI and USAID team for inviting me to participate in this exciting seminar. It is indeed uh, the discussions so far have been uh, absolutely in line with uh, some of the observations and experiences we are having. And uh, if we may please move to the second slide. 
I can uh, begin my introduction uh, of the, my presentation with a quick background of who we are for those of you who do not know us. So Expert Trading Group is a 53-year-old agricultural supply chain country, company started in Kenya and we have moved across five continents. And uh, over 7,000 employees and 95, 95 processing plants, warehouse, over 462 warehouses. We trade over 7 million metric tons of commodities and they move them annually. And uh, next slide, please. Uh, but we trade 40 commodities out of which uh, top 10 are food commodities, which comprise of about 80% of those 7,000 metric tons. So we, we do see the impact uh, on, the, on the trade quite sub, uh, substantially. Our export trading group's major vision and mission is to facilitate production of high quality crops and provide a market for all surplus commodities. And I think I just want to highlight that for the purpose of our uh, discussion today. Next slide, please. What I want to highlight by these graphics is to just give you an idea that we have a rural, urban, and port infrastructure that connects our small-scale rural farmer to the global market as well as across the region. I will focus on Africa, and in Africa, we are largely present in Eastern, Southern, and Western Africa, over 20 countries. So uh, this is where we have uh, uh, this level of infrastructure and uh, so we are able to see the impact starting from the farm gate all the way to uh, the destinations across the different continent. Next slide, please. Our, uh, in the next, what I want to show you and highlight here is that we, our trade of uh, millions of metric tons is directly linked with small-scale farmers. Over 85% of the commodities we trade, we buy, we sell, they, uh, they are with uh, small-scale farmers and only smaller percentage come from the commercial. And this is basically exporting African origin commodities as well as importing what the continent needs as well as processing. So what we see is farm to fork supply chain and impact across the board. And I just want to highlight some of the observations. Next slide, please. Um, so the point that I'm making that how Export Trading Group uh, and why am I speaking to you as a head of uh, Export Trading Farmers Foundation is that uh, while we are independent, we are linked with Export Trading Group. And the way we integrate our, uh, some of our activities are into Boost, uh, boosting uh, sustainable practices and building and strengthening new supply chains, uh, bringing smallholder farmers to formalized uh, either financial systems into cooperatives and uh, increasing the production. So in uh, my capacity with my team on the ground, 
we are very much seeing the impact uh, in uh, socioeconomic as well as farming sector. Next slide, please. And uh, the, this, what, what I want to just leave the introduction here and just highlight on two points that main function of the foundation would be the supports and creation of sustainable supply chains and uh, connecting smallholders with the entire supply chain actors. Now, uh, so how does COVID impact relates to our work and our experiences? Uh, I would take you through that slide, uh, please. Next slide, if I may. And I, if we may skip this slide and go directly into the impact that would be great. Thank you. Uh, so ETG, what the, the conversation so far and uh, the research and uh, as well as the other uh, comments by my African colleagues, we concur with many of those comments. And I just want to highlight that what are the practical experiences that we see as a multinational and, uh, and, and yet, and how do we see the, the impact of COVID? We still have a lot more optimistic perspective than uh, many other people. And I'm gonna just talk about that uh, for the rest of my presentation. So as every, every other speaker has indicated that reduced efficiencies in external st stakeholders. And this results from the lockdown from the government. Yeah, you have a, a, a people working from home environment, the, the unstable network situation. And so the whole uh, the paperwork that requires even to say export or import anything, those things get delayed. Uh, Export Trading Group, we work heavily with uh, WFP and many other food aid programs. So even those international organizational staff has been working in a lower capacity. So all these uh, contractual uh, movement have significantly so slowed down and that also impact the trade. Uh, so, log, so we see just highlighting the sesame trade. I would just want to give you a, an example that lockdown in various countries, say specifically Sudan, Nigeria, Togo, impacted timely shipments deliveries. So you have either the receiving countries being in lockdown and or the exporting countries. So those logistical delays have caused the disruptions and, uh, the, and the trade. ETG China, our China operations, it was interesting how it all began in China. And yet by end of March, as we probably all know, that China started to get into food production, but we have ended up with oversupply because the movement and the demand uh, from the, the other side of the continent it hasn't kept up with the, with the supplies. ETG India, as India is still going through severe lockdowns, but our processing plants and movements have never stopped. And what does that mean uh, for a company? And uh, we will see in the next slide, I just want to see that farm to fork supply chain, the way other speakers have pointed out, we see loss of employment, 
uh, has impacted. We see that uh, the fear of uncertain economy. So even if people do have capacity, they are holding on to the purchase uh, per, uh, purchase of higher end commodities. Fluctuation in local currency. I mean, being on the continent, we have seen that a lot. Uh, say in uh, Zambia, I'm also sitting in Lusaka, Zambia, we see that Kwacha has deteriorated significantly in over the last six months. Uh, so these are some of the, 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 the highlights of how when you are working across the continent in rural and urban setting, what level of infrastructural and capacity building investment that becomes an added cost. It is just an operational cost that a company had not quite anticipated. And then with slowing down of the, the whole supply chain and the business, so it has put an extra burden on the, 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 uh, on the operations and cost. Next slide, please. Our uh, logistical, uh, you will see that uh, we, you can move on to the next slide, please. Thank you. So employee sensitization, uh, because it has been a key uh, investment for us because we also have cashew processing plants and, uh, and, and uh, we have number of food processing plants across the continent. So this, this requires a significant uh, monitoring and management to be able to function during this kind of extreme conditions. So at ETG, we say that actually our work has increased during lockdown. Uh, we actually never have quite gotten into lockdown in the company. On the current market status, so just want to highlight some of these things. What does it result? And this again relates to what David and Joe has observed earlier. So stock feed plants in some countries were as down as 60% between March to July, because even, of course, the demand, some countries had locked down. And most importantly, the, 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 the price, I mean, the, the affordability for a, a reg, a, an average consumer suddenly disappeared. And so those companies, even our own stock feed plants have struggled but now they are picking up. Other impact I want to highlight, which is uh, indirect and yet it is direct, because as we know on African continent, we do have to import a lot of machineries and equipment and spare parts. Uh, uh, not everything is manufactured here. So this, this is, we depend largely on uh, South Africa, China, India, and all of these countries, we have had challenges. So South Africa has been in lockdown, closest and quickest to get there, but it has slowed down. Now, just recently, we have been getting uh, uh, non-essential items and these kind of emergencies that will uh, help us to bring the processing plant back to running at full operational capacity. So we are getting some permits, but otherwise non-essential items have also impacted uh, the processing capacity. What we've seen and production of soybean, maize and beans, as far as the production goes, we have not seen they being severely impacted because largely because the season in many parts of the continent had already begun. And we have 
we have continued to procure uh, from the farmers and the farm gates. So the procurement hasn't stopped, but what we see is this cash crop, what uh, behavior that the small scale farmers as the schools shut down, and that is the main reason to buy, uh, to sell commodity at the harvest time because you need to have cash to pay for the school fees. And we see there is a very, very interesting behavior that farmers either, you know, they are holding on to the crop. Uh, there is also a fear that what if we sell everything, we may go through food insecurity. But we see that slowly this behavior is coming, um, normalizing as the schools are also opening across uh, many countries. Pulses. Pulses uh, that Africa is the biggest exporter of pulses to India and Southeast Asia. We see that India uh, is in our supply chain. Uh, India had much lower production and the demand was much higher. However, last two years, the demand was lower, so farmers had already diversified, but suddenly the pulses price has gone up as high as over 50 to $70 per metric ton because India has, uh, is needing more. So that is interesting. Rice supply chain, and I know David alluded to that earlier, but uh, that we have seen, I would say, particularly in Tanzania and, of course, in West Africa as well. But rice value chain has um, uh, been negatively impacted, and that is from uh, farmer all the way to processor. But, and, uh, but we are really hopeful that with uh, uh, Asian imports being down or being uh, curtailed, the farmers and the governments will work together to make sure farmers are able to sell their commodities. And uh, processors, what we see is the processor from Tanzania who are exporting to nearing, uh, nearby neighboring countries like DRC, Burundi, Rwanda, to, to Malawi even, they have been hit, uh, particularly the SMEs. The uh, overall, we see that Kamesa and SADAC policies on essentials good, prioritizing uh, crucial imports, maize rural moved across the port. Initially, we saw a lot of delays. In fact, uh, uh, earlier in March, our logics team came up with a fantastic uh, uh, solution when we were stranded between Tanzania and Rwanda to disperse inputs. Uh, and that was literally would have affected over 10,000 farmers and the borders closed. The government were still dealing with uh, what to do with uh, COVID-19 and how do you test um, uh, the, the drivers and COVID tests. So we came up with an idea that let's create a relay team. Usually the Tanzanian driver would go across, but here we kept a team of drivers ready at the border and the trucks were taken over by them while the other drivers were waiting for the COVID test results. So I think uh, these are some of the, uh, the way of tackling from private sector perspective. And my last comment is overall crop production has continued and we remain hopeful for better climatic condition and we will continue to uh, run our operations and support the farmers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Furva.
Now we are going to start our Q&A session. And once again, please your questions to on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag askifpri on Twitter. So the first question will be for David. So you mentioned remittances, tourism receipts, and less exports of oil and gas as negative factors on Africa. So the question is, what about international aid? as well as major differences between given countries, for instance, Cameroon, according to their geographical areas and livelihoods. So thanks for the question and the reminder to, to get them in. Um, yes, as we have seen both in the different presentation, we, we face different degree of specialization across countries. And also, you know, who is your main trading partner? Um, so, so far we have seen countries in East uh, Africa that uh, have strong links with India that were uh, less uh, disrupted at the beginning of, of the year than countries that were more focused on China or, or with Europe. So that's what we, we have to keep in mind in terms of you know, what type of product you are exporting as a country and who are your trading partners. So the bulk of the shock for Africa remains on, on the minerals uh, sectors. So, you know, even in terms of, of strategy of diversification, uh, that's always important to, to keep this in mind, you know, the hyper-specialization in minerals in this current situation is really a, a doom. When uh, having a more diversified portfolio, including with agriculture and within agriculture, you know, between different cash crops and, and, and food product, that's quite important to, to increase resilience. Um, so, yes, meaning all the big oil exporters, have been really hurt by the, the, the crisis that actually has not started with the COVID-19, but, but the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia on the oil market, but the COVID-19 came on top of this. Um, and uh, then, of course, all the country depending on, on tourism, because when we talk about of trade, uh, we think trade and goods, but also trade in, in services and, and tourism. And here, yes, uh, countries like Mauritius, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Senegal have uh, suffered uh, a lot. And you know how it's going to continue during the year? That's going to be quite important because if travel restrictions remain, uh, or if just people are just afraid to travel, when you will enter, in some cases, in the winter season uh, in Europe, where traditionally you see more people moving south uh, to enjoy their vacation during the winter break, that will be, you know, some major issues. So all this question of timing within the year is, is quite important. And um, yes, overall, we have countries that have lost 20, 30 percent of their external revenue already and will uh, require uh, international assistance in terms of financing their, their current account. But also, in some cases, we need to uh, make sure that they can shift to more domestic production if you cannot afford uh, international goods on world markets. Thank you, David. So the next question will be for Purva and Nalishebo, and I will ask all the speakers to keep their answer short as much as they can. So has African countries identified main food commodities for export after COVID-19? And how can Africa remove most of the factors militating against agricultural development? Maybe Purva first, and then Nalishebo. Thank you. 
I think uh, the, the two commodities that we have always been exporting, they continue to remain so, which is uh, you're looking largely at sesame, we are looking at cashew nuts, we are looking at uh, pulses, we are, uh, so those are, I will just highlight that those are some of the largest uh, major commodities that are going outside of the continent and uh, then up, across regional. So they, I don't see that uh, it has slowed down, but the, what the main impact is the economic impact on the buying power. So the raw commodities leaving the continent, if the destination is locked down countries, then the processes have slowed down and that impacts the, the trade and the supply chain. If they are uh, going regionally, if they are being processed, then the buying power has reduced. So it all depends on the commodity. But otherwise production, as of now, we have, it hasn't been severely affected. So it should not hinder the export. Hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank you, Nadishebo. Thank you very much, uh, moderator, for that question. I think uh, Purva has obviously answered that uh, question in full. Um, uh, she's obviously identified the commodities, the, the large commodities that have to be um, export that are usually exported out of Africa, and that there has not been um, any impact um, yet on 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 that. But I said earlier on in my presentation that uh, COVID nineteen is going to be here for a while. Uh, and so I think we need to remove the narrative, this negative narrative around um, issues such as um, uh, trade, that you know we are going to be impacted heavily. What our national governments need to start doing now is beginning to realize that uh, the pandemic is here to stay and we need to ensure that we put in place um, strategies and begin to open up um, trade as much as possible. Because if we continue with the negative thoughts around um, you know, the impact of COVID-19, chances are that we will then begin to see exports of those commodities actually beginning to, to reduce. So we need to begin to realize that COVID is here, it is here to stay, uh, and let us not um, continue with that negativity um, around the possibility of COVID reducing the amount of trade that is happening um, between you know, intra-African intra trade as well as global trade. Thank you. Now a question to Joe from our colleague Antoine Bouet. Export restrictions are very damaging. Can WTO do anything about that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, uh, Fus. And, um, you know, as you know, the, what the WTO can do best here, I think, is, is maintain a transparent system so that countries are aware when these restrictions go into place, how long they're supposedly, if countries can let people know how long they're going to be in place. Uh, it, it unfortunately is, is fairly powerless to do anything to prevent countries from doing that. Um, I think uh, when the G20 met, uh, for example, back in 2011, when the ag ministers got together, and confronted this issue of, of export grain restrictions, I think what their feeling was is if nothing else, if they could provide better information about markets to, um, to countries, 
that there would be better policies. So for example, in 2010-11, while uh, wheat prices were going up and other prices were going up, uh, actually there was a lot of supplies on the market and, and availabilities on stocks, but still countries were implementing export bans. I think that, that by contrast, when 2012-13 came, Amos, uh, the agricultural market information system that was created by the G20 actually helped um, the situation at that point by pointing out that there were ample supplies when the uh, North American drought and the Southern European drought came. But, you know, it, 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 the WTO, I think, has been very active in trying to get members to um, uh, notify their problems or notify their restrictions. And if you go up on their website, they have a long list of those things. And I think we've been fortunate this time around uh, just because I think a lot of the actions that we saw initially in March and April uh, turned out to be far less consequential than we thought they would be. Now, again, I think Nalishibo and others have talked about the problems um, um, and, and um, Porva talked about the problems, local problems that we're seeing, and I think those do need to be addressed as best possible. But WTO, its best efforts right now are, are in the transparency uh, part of it and to make any of these restrictions known. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. A question to David and to Jen. So wouldn't import substitution for food products appear to be a good step towards coping with similar crises and increasing local resilience? This is a topic that has been much debated over the last decades, starting in the 60s. So, so um, I, I think that as a trade economist, um, you believe in some level of specialization, so meaning that people try to do uh, the type of crops and products and or services that they are good at and we should not force fit specialization on people I mean that if you have not the good agroecological system or the, the good labor force and the good skill because you know being a farmer and good farmers requires human capital uh, you are not going to produce your, your own food efficiently uh, easily so trade will lead to specialization now with as with any kind of specialization too much specialization make you more um, exposed to risk. So the question is how governments are managing risk. But this year we have seen both the COVID-19 and of course the, the external constraints mean that for some countries buying food on, on world markets may have been a, a bit challenging on the short term, but it's more a liquidity issue, but also the locust crisis in East Africa. And you have this type of crisis that, you know, being self-sufficient if you are hit by locusts will not save you. At the contrary, you need to make sure that Regionally, globally, we are pulling risk, we are managing risk, weather risk, pest and disease, global risk. So really it's more, I think, how we define coordination at the regional level, at the continental level, at the global level, than saying, okay, we need to uh, produce uh, individually at the country level our own food. Because for some country will not be able to do it in a sustainable way, environmentally, lack of water. Some other will not be able to do it economically. Um, and therefore, that's what I would just be very careful in terms of saying, okay, we need to produce our own food. Many countries will not be able to do it. Uh, the question is more how we manage risk and to have a balanced development strategy, both in terms of crop, commodity, macro risk management, value chain risk management. And um, that's it. I hope that I provided the, the key elements. Thank you, David. 
Jen, your view on that? Um, can I add on? Yes, please go ahead. Um, the whole issue of import substitution is about substituting those imports by um, locally produced products, which is very, very important. And it goes also, it's related to, uh, to, to value addition of those products which you, you have been importing, but you add value to them at, at, at the national level. Um, for me, I think value addition is very, very critical uh, because it, it's the key to agricultural production and productivity. It's also key for stable incomes, not just at household level, but also at national level. Because the biggest challenge facing Africa are the fluctuating prices of our, our raw products on the global market. So if we can be able to import substitute those products which we are importing from outside for example oil you know uh, oil we we import oil yet we can be able to make it from our own sesame we are raw sesame and importing oil so it's very for me it's a key to agriculture production but again it all enables um, countries to create employment across the value chain because some of the value chains are very lucrative. So, but what, what's important is to be able to put in place supportive policies and to be able to plan because you are not going to import substitute everything. Also the policies, the supportive policies at the regional, national, and global level, and also sectoral policies like trade, investment, uh, even education policies. So it's, uh, it isn't something which can be undertaken uh, without a very, uh, a very protracted planning. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Now we are going to Take two more questions for Purva. So the first question is, how does the ETG define smallholder farmers or small-scale farmers? And the second one will be, which specific policy changes are needed to bring back the food supply chain to a pre-COVID level in all respects? Thank you. So how does ETG support, which is, we are, as I said, we have not gone into any lockdown. We have been continuously working through our rural infra infrastructure with our extension team through foundation as well as ETG input teams. And we are supporting farmers with the market. Our processing plants have been stopped. Our uh, uh, export and uh, working with other uh, food aid organization, we continue to do that so that the food moves across the continent and where it needs to go uh, globally. So that way we are committed to work through the pandemic. And, uh, and, and second question, could you please repeat that for me? Define small scale farmers. Define small scale farmers. You are looking at 
subsistence farmer who is sitting far away where nobody can get to, all the way to the, the farmers that are uh, residing near urban areas. So our outreach is uh, literally across the, the 20 odd countries, we go all the way to the farm gate level. So we are looking at a small scale farmer who is producing the commodities that we do business with. So that farmer is uh, with a one acre or one hectare and uh, producing either for family and anything that uh, farmer has surplus. So I think I want to highlight that, that the, the farmer definition would be that anyone who has surplus to sell ab above and beyond their food security is the one we do business with and all the way up to the uh, bigger farmers. And as far as policies are concerned uh, with, uh, uh, in relation to COVID-19, I see that we continuously work uh, with uh, the, the, the government agencies and the, and the logistical challenges. So as of now, we find that uh, we don't see a significant, uh, uh, we don't have significant recommendation for one thing or the other. Uh, for any policy changes at this point. Thank you. Thank you. So a, a question to Nalish Chebo and to mm -hmm. Jane. Are the private sector sources for food imported and from which countries, EU, US or other countries? Sorry, could you repeat your question? So the question is, are the private sector sources for food you imported please, from the EU, the US, or from other countries? Do you have any data related to that? Private sector sources, sorry, I you. Yes, the, private, English. the private, private sector, sector sources source. for food mm -hmm. imported. Do we have data for that? Yes, or do we have some evidence? the countries the yes, imports are coming from? Certainly there is evidence. Um, our centers, um, as I said in my presentation, have been looking at some of the uh, trends, the, the import trends, the export trends, and they've obviously been identifying sources of, the, of, of those um, um, uh, commodities. Uh, I don't have the details with me right now, but certainly our centers are involved in, in doing that sort of research, identifying um, sources of uh, food imports, but also um, uh, countries to where we export products from the countries where we are located. Okay, I would like you to keep the floor mm -hmm. for any final comment you may have in 30 seconds. We'll mm -hmm. begin to wrap up after mm -hmm. I move to Nalishebo. That was me who just spoke. We are going to wrap up, so I would like to give you 30 seconds if you have any final remarks you might have. Okay, all right. So my final remarks, obviously, are just to thank uh, IFPRI and, um, and USAID for inviting us to be a part of this um, conversation. Uh, and just to share that um, the RINAPRI Annual Stakeholders Conference will take place on the 18th of November, 2020. And during that conference, we will obviously be sharing some of the key findings from the work that I just uh, uh, described in my earlier um, intervention. Thank you.
Thank you. Jen, also, if you have any final comment and if you want to react to the question on 30 seconds, please go ahead. Um, my final comment would Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Uh, my Go ahead, we can hear you. would be on addressing uh, the issues um, affecting. Hello? Uh, and to say that the post, the pre COVID, um, pre COVID situation shouldn't be the yardstick. And I think we should be more ambitious because the pre COVID um, situation also had challenges, very, very many challenges. So when we are um, looking at the future, we need to be more ambitious, building on the lessons we have learned in order to be able to build a resilience agriculture sector in Africa. Thank you. Thank and you very much. You are welcome. Purva? Thank you. We feel that uh, there is plenty of food available globally because the farmers haven't stopped working. They have been in the best position to isolate themselves and they have continued to work. The issue is the economic downturn, the Im impact that has led to loss of jobs, less income, uh, the, the fear uh, of uh, food security or just financial insecurity has substantially impacted the entire uh, supply chains. So the consumer is uh, also impacting hugely. So you see the cheaper food products uh, uh, are being consumed heavily, high-end products, not so. And that is also impacting the tax income uh, for the government. So say beer, so many companies had to shut down or reduce their operations. So the focus should be on how do we focus on boosting agriculture, support the farmers, and that will turn back the economic engine our countries need. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Foos. Um, yeah, I, I would just echo everyone's thoughts. Thanks a lot for the invitation to be here. I learned a lot. I think the, the getting this local perspective and regional perspective is very, very important for me. I agree with uh, what was said with uh, by Nalishibo. I think this is, COVID's gonna be here for a while. I think this is something we're gonna be, we're gonna have to get used to and figure out how to work around and how to, um, you know, lower the costs of, of, of doing business given these new constraints. Um, uh, the only comment I would say, uh, uh, the, the one thing I'd like to hear more about at some point, uh, and moderator, you're one of the ones who are working in this area, is the role of informal trade in these situations to see uh, how informal trade has been impacted, if informal trade has increased in some cases because of uh, restrictions, but uh, that's for another seminar, I think. so. Again, thanks very much. Exactly. Very good point, Joe. David? Yes, no, thanks everyone for, for joining in this in seminar. Uh, what I will say is, I think it has made it clear that, you know, actually farmers have been pretty resilient during the crisis. Uh, everywhere in the world, they have continued to work and people need to continue to eat. So making sure that we use this, the farm sectors and agricultural trade 
as a source of resilience um, is pretty obvious during the crisis and should be a lesson reminded for the future. But I will conclude by this aspect of policy coordination because a lot of the unfortunate events we have seen and some have been mitigated was coming from uncoordinated policy response uh, when in some countries, even within some regional group in Africa, they, they have closed the borders, disrupting uh, logistics without coordination with their neighbor, or globally when we are seeing some of export restrictions. Unilateral policy response will be the last resort, not the first one, and really providing information, uh, as most of the people in this call are, are, are doing, to inform policymakers that they don't act um, just with their guts, but based on evidence and finding dialogue with their partners in the next country or in the next continent is so important in terms in time of crisis. And that really should be the, uh, the big takeaway, you know, policy coordination based on up-to-date and good information is so critical in terms of crisis. Thank you. Thank you, David, for those remarks. Now we are almost at the end of the webinar and I would like to welcome our Director General, IFP Director General, Yuan Suinen, for his closing remarks. Yo. Thank you very much, Fusani. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I think this was a, um, a very interesting seminar with a lot of uh, very important contributions. It was also a very rich set, a rich set of uh, presentations. I have selected person, it's, this is a purely personal selection. I just point, uh, picked out five points, which I thought were important, and there were many more than this. This is just a, a subsection. Uh, also not to repeat the things which have been said already. <clears throat> the first one is that obviously, markets and trade are, are crucially important in uh, <clears throat> poverty reduction and, and growth. And uh, this is true in general, obviously, but it's certainly also true related to the impact that COVID-19 has. And so we're talking here about global trade and intra-Africa trade, both formal and informal trade. So the disruptions to trade and to these markets have been uh, significant and have had large impacts on uh, the, the basically the well-being of, of many of the poor people. My second uh, point is that the disruptions of the trade and the impacts of the, of the related impacts on, on poverty and food security and nutrition have been affected by a combination of macroeconomic effects and microeconomic effects. So the macroeconomic effects where both David and, and Joe, I think, pointed out quite well have to do with basically global prices that changed uh, both in the, and impact both in the real economy and in the financial economy coming together. At the same time, we've seen the breakdown of, of supply change, which Purva gave with excellent examples from, from the, the real world, her, her company, which she described in great detail. And I think all these things are very powerful to understand. But it's the, it, what is crucial for us, I think, also moving forward, finding the right policy responses, is to understand that the interaction of these micro and macro effects are there, and basically we need to build them in, in our analysis. Third major point is that we know that the, the impacts are large, uh, the average impacts are large, but there's huge heterogeneity among the countries. And I think uh, David did a great job of, of documenting this with, with macro numbers, but it came back in the presentation of several of the other participants who described this, this heterogeneity in, in different ways or with different indicators, okay? It's not only that the heterogeneity is different in terms of the effects, but that also, of course, what is causing this. 
dependence on oil in terms of exports or in terms of imports, uh, dependence on tourism, remittances, specific sectors in the country, all these things are, are important. My fourth uh, point is that um, it is clear that COVID-specific policies are important, so policy to address the, the impacts of COVID. But what came back, I think, in several of the presentations, particularly the one by Jane, also was that the traditional policy recommendations remain very important, okay? So it's not that what's happening with COVID suddenly makes that all these other things don't matter anymore. Things like reducing trade distortions, including uh, export restrictions, increasing agricultural productivity, reducing market imperfections, enhancing access to markets for small holders. All these things have not been, um, are not less important because of COVID, but are in a way even more important of COVID. And we should not let that out of our sight. And then final, my final point, my fifth point has to do with, and this has come back in various ways in several, in all the presentations, the importance of data and information, okay? So we need good indicators, both in terms of the impact and in terms of the policies that are there or basically how policies play a role or not playing a role. This allows, and then of course, if you have good data and good information, you should do the right analysis. So quality analysis is important to provide evidence-based policymaking as an, as an input to evidence-based policymaking, also for larger development strategy and also a point which came back in the end for feeding into international negotiations, providing more transparencies, I think. So this means for uh, my own institute, for IFPRI, that there's lots of work that remains to be done going forward, but I, we should emphasize that the role of collaboration, and this is really important, collaboration with National Research Institute, such as Renarpi, as um, emphasized by Nilishibo, and um, the role for donor stakeholders, different stakeholders, the private sector certainly also plays an important role for us to understand what is going on. Okay, I think those are my main points, which I wanted to emphasize at the end of what I thought was, was a, great, uh, a great event and a very rich set of presentations. Thank you. Thank you very much you for those points. Thank you everyone for joining us for this important discussion. Please join us next week, Tuesday, September 22 at 8.30 a.m. EDT for our book launch on Ethiopia's agri-food system, past trends, present challenges, and future scenarios. So special thanks to all the speakers and to our communication team for the logistics. So now I declare this webinar closed. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye.